Welcome to Heart Shaped Pod, a Nirvana fan podcast, with your hosts, Adam Todd Brown and Travis Clark. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Heart Shaped Pod, a Nirvana podcast. I'm Adam Todd Brown. I'm Travis Clark. And we're your hosts. And we're super Nirvana fans. Super duper Nirvana fans. I was listening to Nevermind on the way over here to kind of re-familiar, I guess not even re-familiarize myself, yeah. but just to kind of get in the mood. Yeah. And it's amazing how much of that album, I still know, I know all the the drum drops, I know right. every, like there's nothing that I go like, oh right, this song, I know which song is next, I know which riff is next. I know it's Yeah, I, I feel that way about In Utero too. Sure. I've listened to all of these albums so many times. There was a point in my life where I listened to Nirvana every day. Right. And they're front for to years. And they're front to back albums. You don't Right. I'm sure there's some people who maybe listen to a song or two, but whenever I put it on, I'm like, I'm doing this yeah. I'm doing it until yeah. it's over. I'll probably let it loop. I'll probably let yeah. it go, you know. Yeah. They changed everything for me in terms of music and sure. what music I, I listen to. Me too. I think it I was a senior in high school when Nevermind came out, and I remember, you know, I was like, I liked Metallica and like the, the you know, Guns N' Roses. I liked those kind of bands. Not that I was like brand loyal to them, but that right. was the, mostly the kind of the stuff that I listened to. Yeah. You know, stay up late at night. I'd watch Headbangers Ball, write down the name of bands that they played that I thought was cool. That's how I found out about new music. Right. At the time. Then I went into the local record store here in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles called Moby Disc. No longer with us. But that was like where you went. What a great name, though. Yeah, and it was around for a long time. And it yeah. was like the used record store before used record right. stores were big. In fact, at the time, in the early 90s, I don't know if you remember this, but like Garth Brooks had like a big beef with used record stores. He was like trying to shut them down. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. he was like, oh, you're buying my record again, but I'm not seeing any money. And so Moby Disc had this just like <laughs> cardboard cutout of, of Garth Brooks in the window that they just kind of decimated. They just kind of <laughs> kept messing it up. And I remember walking into Moby Disc and just all of a sudden it, it was just the blue water everywhere. They had put up the these like never yeah. mind pre-posters or like pre-release posters. And I it, it was... It was a huge push on somebody's part, right. uh, I guess Geffen, to really get the word out about this. And I, that was the first time I got exposed to it. And I knew about Soundgarden, but I didn't know about Nirvana yet. And wow. We, we all just sat there like trying to figure We saw the baby swimming towards the dollar, and we yeah. were all like, oh, what is that? And we were just <laughs> instantly hooked, like, what is this thing? Right. That's the first time I remember even it showing up on my radar. Yeah. Yeah, I was for me, I listened to we're I think we're close to the same age. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Um I was born in 76. 74. So, so yeah. yeah. Yeah, so yeah. relatively the same age. So I was in high school also when Nirvana broke, but I at the time up until I was 22, 23, I listened to nothing but rap music. Like really? that's surprising. Nothing I know because I know a lot about music. <laughs> But it, right, but I just I, I I associate you with more as a rock and roll guy. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. And what happened is I was one day in my apartment in like ninety eight, ninety nine, something like that, super duper high, just high out of my mind. And I was watching something on MTV, God knows what. And MTV uh, Nirvana Unplugged comes on, and the remote was way across the room. I'm stoned, so I'm like, you know what? It's not rap, but also 
it's it's not rock. Like I had a weird thing about electric guitars before really? Nirvana. Like it all just felt like noise to me. And oh, that's interesting. I was uh, super duper high, and Nirvana Unplugged comes on, and I'm like, "Fuck it, whatever. I'll watch it. I'll probably just fall asleep." And I was goddamn mesmerized watching that. Like it was one of the best things I had ever seen. And you saw it not until '99, you think? Yeah, yeah. I, so I mean, you were I a late seen, adopter, so yeah, yeah it, it had already kind which of is, done its thing. Which is good because he died around the same time my dad died. And I don't know if I needed that. No, that's in an my ad- life. That's an added wrinkle you don't need. Yeah. yeah. So it, I feel like it was good that I I caught on late. But yeah, I watched Nevermind, and I was like, or I watched MTV Unplugged, and I was like, what am I doing with my life? There's so much, so much more music I should be listening to, and that got me into just rock music in general. Like I was. Within a week, I was buying like nothing but rock albums, like everything I could, like classic shit, shit that was just coming out. Like one of my favorite albums ever came out around that time, which is uh, "There's Nothing Left to Lose," the Foo Fighters' oh, third sure. album. Right, that's one of the first rock albums I bought the day it came out, and it was interesting because I had just seen MTV Unplugged, and, and there's it a blew fun, me away. There's a fun little uh, Easter egg that ended up getting a lot of circulation online many years later from There's Nothing Left to Lose, where there's uh, Dave Grohl kind of acting like he's drunk, but everybody like four or five years later thought it was real, where he's in the studio making There's Nothing Left to Lose, and he's just holding like a bottle of Jack Daniels or Wild Turkey. Uh-huh. He's going, don't tell me how to make records. I was in Nirvana. And it's really funny, but then like everyone started posting it being like, look what an asshole Dave Grohl uh, is. Yeah. You're like, no, dude, that's clearly comic acting. There's nothing yeah. serious about it. Yeah, Dave Grohl does has never struck me as an asshole. No, he's like supposed to be the nicest guy in rock and roll. Yeah, right? unless you're Courtney Love, and then you hate him. Yeah, that's the only. I feel like if Courtney Love is your only enemy, you're probably doing all right. Yeah, yeah, you know? definitely. <laughs> She's kind of everyone's enemy. Like it, it, it happens. Back to the unplugged thing, though. I watched it when it aired originally in early '94, if I remember correctly. I think it was like. Or it might have been late ninety three, the first yeah. time it ever aired. Uh I think it was early ninety four. They recorded it late ninety three, okay. November ninety-three. That was one of those things that for me cemented what a great band they were. Because it's real easy to be a big loud it's not easy. It's easier yeah. to be a big loud band and to write these, you know, anthems. When you strip it down and make it that more simplistic thing, yeah. I think to see that that still holds together. That was more impressive to me, especially at the time. I kind of I started learning to play guitar because of Nirvana, because I was like, I want to learn how to play that song. I did too. Really? Yeah, I used to have a Univox High Flyer. Oh yeah, he made those famous. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that was a fun guitar. It is a very loud guitar too. Yeah, yeah. But what I remember being impressed by was my dad, who probably in hindsight was like my age now, yeah. was watching this and going, "Wow, these guys are fucking good." And it yeah. was like this cross generational thing where it was it was no longer like these are the fucking guys and you don't fucking get them. It was like oh shit, no, I get it. You right. know, like and it, it was this weird bonding moment I had with my dad of watching that concert. And that concert is still hard for me to watch because at, during the very end when they're still playing uh, in the pines, yeah, uh, you can tell he's done. You can tell he's he he doesn't have it anymore. Right, right, and he muscles through it anyway it still like tears me up to watch it like happen yeah that uh, part where he's about to hit that last note and, he and did, his and eyes get and really big he goes yeah <sighs> and then goes back into it you're like yeah. oh my god yeah everything about that was have you seen the mtv documentary about 
Nirvana Unplugged? It was called Bear Witness. Is that where they show all the little outtakes and them kind of going yeah. in between? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it that was really interesting. And I I like how they, they pointed out that the stage design, like stargazer lilies are like a funeral flower. And that's oh, what weird. Like the whole they like when they were talking about setting up the stage, like he specifically requested those. And they were like, yeah, it just had like a funeral feel to it. It's so weird. It is. It's super weird. But but yeah, that MTV Unplugged, that album, that performance fucking changed everything. Unbelievable. Yeah. And the whole, you know, when you see it all edited together, it's like slick and, and nice and cool. And, you know, and it, yeah. it doesn't seem like that there's this kind of, they're kids. If you think about it now, they were kids. You well, know? yeah. yeah he they, was 27 when right. he died. And... I'm not hearing shit from a 27-year-old right now. Right, exactly. Not yeah. a word. I don't want to hear a fucking thing you have to say. <laughs> you don't know shit. Yeah. But one of my favorite songs by uh, Nirvana is Penny Royalty. And that, yeah. that performance in the Unplugged thing where he, it's just him doing it, and you think it's this choice, you know, you think these are just guys who are so media savvy and this is how we're going to do it. No, he kept fucking it up in rehearsal, and he just right. wanted to... To you know, Dave even says to him, "It's even on the live album." No, you just do this one, and they right. bow out to let him do that song, which is such a like iso- song about being isolated, right? And and doing it like by himself. Ah, yeah, it's that performance. I mean, that it, in theory might be their strongest album. Like, it doesn't count as a studio album, right. obviously. But he put so much thought into that track list and the songs he picked. And the and and the people he brought up right. too, and it's it's basically a covers album. Like right. for at least half of it, it's a covers album. But he really took ownership of those songs. Like I I would argue their version of the man who sold the world is better than David Bowie's version. It, it, you know, um, uh, I would say that that is a debatable for sure thing. But I yeah. I I would agree with you because. While I was familiar with that song, I wasn't as deep into the Bowie catalog at that point. Because, yeah. I mean, I was like 19 when that thing aired. Right, so I right. was still figuring out what it is I liked. And even now when I hear the Bowie version, I go, I don't know if it's because I heard Kurt's version yeah, first. or yeah. there, But there is something about it. There's something about the distorted you know, acoustic yeah. guitar. Yeah, There's Bowie yeah. sounds really dreamy, and I don't like it. Right. And Kurt's is real... I it's, think he, he feels like the man who sold the world. Like yeah. he sold them this idea, this counterculture. And that I think that's right. was my take of why he picked that song. You know what I love about that song on the album is the one guy in the audience who recognizes it right at the beginning. Oh, and you hear him go, Whoa! <laughs> Everyone else is like, What is this? Whoa, what? You, damn, this guy's a super which, fan. Which yeah. album was this on? <laughs> I love that part so much. I also love they open the show with they open with About a Girl. Is that the first song they play? Yeah. And they go, This is off our first album. Most people don't own it. Like, yeah, just, yeah. I think he was a really unique and funny guy. That's that's a thing that gets lost in their story so much. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast, like we could do this podcast without ever talking about their actual music. True. There are so many crazy, interesting, and a lot of times really funny stories behind this band and just Kurt Cobain in general. Like he's you know, painted for good reason, I guess, as a really depressed kind of morose guy, but he wasn't that. Like if if you read interviews, I mean I'm sure he had his moments like anyone, but if you read interviews or watch interviews with him, he was a genuinely funny and charming guy. Right. And I feel like that that's a thing that gets gets glossed over a lot. And 
And he did weird things. We were talking about this before we came up here. Like, it's like he wanted to be on TV, but he also wanted to fuck up whatever was going to be on TV anytime right. he was doing an interview. Like, there was a famous interview of him saying, he wasn't necessarily comparing Nirvana to the Beatles, but he was saying, like, you know, when a band gets gigantic like that. But the whole time he has, like, Christmas tinsel around yeah. his neck and Christmas lights, I want to say, too. Like, he's just, you know, he was just, uh, I think he had fun with being famous. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I I was never all that convinced that he didn't actually want to be famous. Yeah, I don't think so either. I think maybe it's one of those careful what you wish for kind of things. Yeah. But I think, you know, because there's parts of it you go, I had no idea it was going to be like this. But for the most part, the dude, I mean, the dude was was really an interesting, funny guy. It yeah, seemed like. Yeah. Reserved, you know, definitely. Yeah, for sure. But you look at other people from that era. Like, I just watched. Are you a Screaming Trees fan? Oh yeah. All right. So Mark I watched. Lanigan. I watched a Mark Lanigan interview from around the same time. That dude did not want any of it. He didn't want any of yeah, it. Yeah, I could see that. And he made the guy who was hosting 120 minutes at the time. This was before Matt Pinfield. Right. Uh, he made that guy quit because he was like, "This is too hard. I can't do it." Jesus. <laughs> yeah. It's a. It's a. It's a shocking, shocking interview. Yeah, that and see, that's the thing. I feel like most bands from the Nirvana era are that way. Right. I feel like a lot of them are really sullen and unhappy and just come across as really depressed when you go back and look at interviews and footage. And it's, ironically, the first one to commit suicide, maybe. It's not, like, he's the lone exception, kind of. Right. Like, well, we lost uh, Andrew Wood of oh, Mother yeah, Love Bone yeah, and sure. all of that. I mean, I, I was thinking about it when I was coming over here. I was like, dude, all of these Seattle guys, like, 40 was got, got to be old for them, you know? Like, yeah, for sure. None of, them, none of them made it that long. Except Mark Arm. No one ever talks about Mark Arm from Mud Honey. That's true. That guy's still around in Mud Honey. I think Mud Honey's still a band. They're such a great fucking they band. They are, but he has, like, some weird day job that he does. I was just reading. I can't remember what it is. Oh, really? But, like, it's like, yeah, I do the music, but I also do this thing. Oh, so, wow. But I, I don't know. I can't, you know, great information, Travis. I have no idea what it is. <laughs> Possibly, you know, he's, yeah. he's not like uh, Brian May. He's not like, you know, what? Yeah. he's not an astrophysicist who designed <laughs> something that went to Pluto. No, he works at a coffee shop. Yeah, but, yeah, he makes a killer macchiato. <laughs> I love Mud Honey, though, and that's one of the... The other things about Nirvana, they introduced me to so many other bands. Sure. Like, Devo was just the Whippet band to me before I started reading up on Nirvana. Great cover. Uh, is it Turnaround that's on Incesticide? I think oh, it's a, I th- yeah, a yeah, yeah, Devo yeah. cover. They were way into Devo. The Meat Puppets, who are uh, doing a free show in downtown L.A. in August. Are they really? Yeah, Pershing One Square. One of them went missing for a while. Yeah, yeah. The that, twin, the the brothers, the what does he call the brothers him? Kirkwood? The brothers Kirkwood. Yeah. That's what he calls him in the. Uh, yeah, that was the thing that I thought was cool that you don't see a lot of people necessarily do now. I'm sure there's exceptions to the rule, but they were really interested in in like you're saying, not only exposing people to other songs by bands they don't know, but also bringing other musicians along. They right. brought Pat Smear out, you know, and yeah. introduced him as the as the new second guitarist. They brought the Kirkwood brothers out. They brought. Things like the Vaselines and, yeah. and, and songs Lori like Goldstein. They had yeah. a cello player on their last tour. Yeah, and on never on uh, unplugged. Right, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, they and they were great about promoting obscure bands, things that they were fans of. They were like, yeah. "You should know about this." Yeah, and yeah. I I found like that's how I I first heard the Pixies was through right because they said they said uh, 
they were convinced that uh, "Smells Like Teen Spirit" was a Pixies ripoff. Yeah, it, and it is. It sound the chorus is exactly the same as a Pixies song called "UMass," but it's also the chorus from "More Than a Feeling." So is it really? Yeah, yeah. More than a feeling and smells like Teen Spirit are pretty much identical. Oh man, now I'm gonna have to go back and listen to both of those at the same time. Yeah, I have a I had a bootleg. I probably still have I lost a hard drive that had hundreds of Nirvana bootlegs on it. And on one of them they kind of launch into more than a feeling. Oh, they first do before they oh, do smells great. like teen spirit. Yeah. It's really great. So this this first episode obviously is just kind of an introductory thing. We're gonna in in future episodes hit on more specific topics. I think we haven't have we decided what our first episode, our f- next episode, I guess, um, is gonna be. We had a couple of ideas banging around, but I don't think we'd settled on. I don't think we'd uh, circled the drain as to which one was was gonna be the the actual topic. Yeah. Maybe, maybe something childhood related. We'll figure it out. Yeah. In the meantime, let's. What's your favorite Nirvana album? Uh, it's hard because I mean, first of all, we don't have that many to pick from. It's not like they have right. this, you know, immense catalog. It's not like a, speaking of Mark Lanigan. It's like Mark Lanigan puts out a new record every six months. You know, yeah. and uh, each one I like, but you know, how about least favorite? I'd say least listened to is probably Incesticide. I just don't listen yeah. to it. That's the one of all the or, or no, no, probably Bleach. I don't yeah. listen to Bleach that much. Yeah, it's Bleach for me also, and I think that's because I. That wasn't my entry point for them. So it's like, right. I feel like I got to go back. And it's so different from, like, what I love about In Utero is it's those two things. It's Bleach and Nevermind kind of condensed into a perfect package. But it was also kind of a, I, I always took it as kind of a middle finger to success. Oh, yeah, for because sure. Because they could have easily have just gone and made, you know, Smells Like Teen Spirit also, you know, right. or whatever, you know. But they wanted to make no. Let's make the, let's make it sound different. Let's make it feel different. Yeah. Let's do uh, an inversion of our hit and make it about rape. Like everything about yeah. that is is like he opens the album by saying teenage angst has paid, paid off, off well. well. Now, now I'm, I'm bored, bored and, old. and old. Yeah. So great. So fucking great. And they were super bummed that it didn't do well. I mean, it did. It didn't. Do it didn't. Never it, mind. Well, but right. it sold like three million. I think it did fine. But yeah. I think. You remember there was that that uh, well no you don't because you didn't get into it till later there was this weird perceived feud between Pearl Jam and uh, Nirvana oh at yeah the time sure. because they were both like these Seattle powerhouses they couldn't be more different bands that's like saying the Rolling Stones and the Grateful Dead hate each other like yeah I yeah. don't think they give a shit about each other to be honest yeah they are yeah. radically different yeah bands. so supposedly there was like uh, Kurt was really bummed that Pearl Jam's sophomore album. Or since their success, sophomore album did, right. did better than uh, in utero. But I think in utero holds up better. I think in utero you could play right yeah, now. Yeah, for sure. Never mind. I won't say it feels dated, but when I listen to it now, it doesn't sound like something from that's solely from the '90s. It feels like it still has a place in. Mod- Maybe that's because it's still on the radio sometimes. Yeah, but yeah. in utero is even more so. It still feels forward. It doesn't have as, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I guess I guess the to answer your question, I think Nevermind is probably my favorite album because that was the album that changed it for me. That was the yeah. album that made me go this one, you know. Uh, and I had the Did you have the version with the secret song on it? Yes. I didn't. And I felt like I got ripped off. I, I, like- I actually had both. I found the secret song version at a at a used record store, actually. I was really bummed that my my copy didn't have it. Yeah, because I was like, thought I was missing out on something. I thought like, oh, well, it turns out I bought like that early of a version of the CD that they didn't have it right, on there right. yet. 
So it turns out it's a rarer thing yeah, to have it. it's worth kind of, kind of <laughs> yeah. worth some money. Yeah. But I traded my college roommate because I was like, oh, you have the secret song. I need everything. <laughs> so I need that. So I, I have, uh, now I have it. I never, but my favorite thing about Nevermind is back when CD changers were the big thing and you yeah. would put a bunch of albums in there and you'd have a party or whatever or hang out with your friends and drop right. acid in the afternoon because fuck it, you're 19 and exactly. you, you work at a hot dog stand. Or you're 41 and you're on a <laughs> podcast network. <laughs> Either one. We would always forget that if it played, you know, underneath the bridge, that it's going to run into that giant half hour gap of nothing. (laughs) So we'd be in the middle of doing something, specifically this one time, this guy, Brian, and I, and we are in the middle of just, you know, losing our minds on acid and climbing trees. (laughs) And we're like, why hasn't there been any music? And like, we're imagining that we've erased music. Like, (laughs) 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 and that it's still playing, but we don't know about it. And then all of a sudden, you know, a half hour, which in acid time is like a year. Yeah. All of a sudden, you know, that giant endless nameless thing comes <laughs> rumbling on and we freak out. I think we fell out of the tree, if I remember correctly. So ne- I have That's just great. so many memories attached to Nevermind. So it has yeah. to be my favorite. What's your favorite? Uh, I think In Utero is my favorite. It's definitely the one I listen to the most, that I have listened to the most. It's it's actually topped four or five favorite albums of, of all, all time. time. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I fucking love Desert Island Disc. Do people still do that? Yeah, I it, I don't know if they do, but it it would be for me. There's like the songwriting on that I think is so much more advanced than on Nevermind. Like you mentioned all apologies, that's on that right. album. Which is weird that that's the last song on that record. Yeah, yeah. You know, knowing yeah, that we never got another studio record from them. But it's and it's such a great way to end that album because that album is for i mean there's some acoustic songs like dumb and things like that but it's a really abrasive album and for one thing i've always liked that like i like when a band has a really big album and kind of acknowledges it and goes we're gonna do something completely different now like one of my other favorite albums of all time is Tusk by Fleetwood Mac. Oh, interesting. Which I could have sworn you were going to say Pinkerton. I could have sworn <laughs> oh, that was no, going to be. No, I do <laughs> fucking love Pinkerton, too. And I think Pinkerton is another good example, uh, just like Fleetwood Mac with Tusk, which was the follow-up to Rumors, where they go in and they've just made one of the biggest albums of all time. And now Lindsey Buckingham is like, let's make a punk album with the USC marching band. <laughs> And it sells like one million copies and everyone in the band hates him. But he's like, whatever, man, we're doing what we want to do. At right. least. And like, that's a good way to not chain yourself to one thing. And I, I really like the way In Utero turned out. I think it's the perfect Nirvana album because it's got that abrasiveness of Bleach, but the melodies and the songwriting are so great yeah and even the really abrasive songs have really strong melodies like Tourette's that's a song you could get stuck in your head and there's no words in it like it's just him kind of shouting syllables out right or radio friendly unit shifter they opened every show of their last tour with With that that song song, yeah Yeah. and you know i I just i fucking love it and also lyrically it's a more interesting album yeah you can um, tell there's meaning behind the songs. Like I, I was actually just randomly reading the lyrics to "Dumb" today, which is a song I've not. Like it's weird how you you know a song and you know the melody and you almost are reciting it, not really thinking about it. Yeah, You're just like these are the notes and I sing that. But if you read it, like it's an incredibly sad song. Oh, for sure. Like I think I'm dumb. Maybe I'm just happy. 
Yeah. And you're like, oh, fuck, yeah. dude. Yeah, it's a depressing sentiment. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah, and there's uh, like songs like Francis Farmer will have, have her a revenge. revenge on Seattle. Right. Which he said was about the Vanity Fair writer, who, which we'll probably cover in another story, who wrote the, the story that got their kid taken away briefly. He said it was about her. It sounds like it's about Courtney Love. Really? I mean, it, yeah, yeah. I've, I've always kind of taken that and Heart Shaped Box to some extent. Have both kind of strike me as anti-Courtney Love songs. As does You Know You're Right, the last song oh, they the ever last recorded. Song, yeah. Yeah. Do you th- what do you think would have happened if they stayed together? Or, or if he'd lived past 94? They would have definitely split up, right? Like, there's no Courtney, way. Him and Courtney Love. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think he, they would have split up, and I think Nirvana would have split up. For sure. Yeah, I don't think I think Nirvana... we would have maybe gotten one more album, don't you yeah, think? They, I mean, yeah, I mean, they were working on, they recorded You Know You're Right. Right. Which is such an amazing song. God, that's a good song. Yeah, and it, what was amazing about when that song finally saw the light of day, Foo Fighters had a new record out. Dave Grohl was uh, had just drummed with Queens of the Stone Age, and You Know You're Right came out. If you were into alternative rock at all in 2002, Dave Grohl had the top three songs. Yeah, it, he was it, killing it. Yeah, he was that. That was yeah. That was the the Grohl year. I remember I called in sick to work the day that box set came out because there was no way I was going to have all that right unreleased Nirvana shit. Which the box set was kind of a disappointment. Yeah, because it was some stuff like if you were a super fan, you'd had on bootlegs or it, it wasn't. Yeah, because it, of Napster. All right. Yeah. Right. That was another thing. When I first got into Nirvana, Napster was also just taking off. Oh, so you could find everything. So I went on. I was like, I would read about them and read about all these B-sides and songs I had never heard. And I was like, fuck, I want to hear these songs, too. And to buy them, I would have had to like buy import versions of CD singles that were like $22 in 1990s money when I was working at a fucking insurance company for $8 an hour. Like, there was no way. Like three hours of work. Yeah. For one song. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then Napster happens, and every rare Nirvana song ever made is online. And that was such a great thing, because I have, I have a very extensive knowledge of Nirvana's unreleased catalog. And I think you're right. Because of that, with the lights out, was a little bit of a disappointment. But I think... My expectation was that was because the way Courtney had talked about it in the press was like, oh, I'm sitting on this gold mine of unreleased material. Right. That we were going to hear demos and 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 songs that we that none of us had ever heard before. Right. And it was like, I think we got like two. Yeah. I, I kind of knew we were in trouble when one of the like key songs they were pushing as being an unreleased song was Old Age, which... Sounds like it maybe would have been a great song if they finished it, right. but it's just him doing like guiding vocals, and you can tell that they haven't mixed it. Like there's no effects on any of the instruments, and there there were a few things on there that just blew me. Like I had never heard "Ain't It a Shame," his the the Lead Belly cover oh. that he does, which is fucking fantastic. I think that's one of his best vocals. Because it's it's one of those where he did that that thing, which uh, he did at the end of Unplugged. He does it at the end of Lounge Act, which is probably my favorite Nirvana mm-hmm. song, where he, he sings the song normal and then hits that last chorus and just starts screaming. And that he used that effect so fucking well. One of the things people uh, don't bring up, much about Kurt Cobain is he screamed a lot, but he screamed on pitch. Right, yeah. Like, it didn't sound off 
when he screamed through an entire verse. Right. Because he was still able to keep his voice in control. And that has to be such a hard thing to do. Like, I'm not a singer, but like that seems like it, it takes some degree of talent. And the other thing that really kind of bummed me out that people would say, because uh, when, I, when I had a guitar teacher, he'd always tell me how simple the songs were. You know? Yeah. They're like, it's just this. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. You're like, simple. Anybody could write this. And I went, but, but he wrote it. Yeah. So why didn't anyone right. write it? Yeah. And you want to go, okay, it's simple. You know, he built a fucking palace out of matchsticks then. Like, he used yeah. a very simple thing and made something great out of it. Right. Even his solos, which were not that complicated. You know, he's not Satriani or any of these other shredder dudes. Right. I always took the interpretation that the notes he did pick and the notes he could play meant something. They right. There was no filler. There was. I'm not trying to impress you with my guitar playing. It's a tool. It's a tool to build this thing. Yeah, he, he did more with feedback and noise on the guitar than most people. Which is why people. I thought it was interesting that you said that previous to Nirvana, you were like, oh, guitar is, like, electric guitar is just noise. And I was like, God, that's so much yeah. of what he did. Though. Yeah, and it really, it took Nirvana for me to appreciate that. I don't know. It's just something about their music just really inherently clicked with me. Like, and they have, like, if you listen to, I, I feel like I'm probably kind of a rhythm guy because of okay. listening to so much rap music. I, li I like music with a good rhythm section, and Nirvana's rhythm section was fucking amazing. Like, I'm surprised more people haven't rapped to Smells Like Teen Spirit. Like, that's... I feel like somebody did. Am I wrong? Did I'm I sure someone has. Yeah. yeah. But what what's... I think one of the reasons they hit so big is that intentionally or unintentionally, they tapped into this kind of... I won't call it a chant, but like a rhythm. They tapped into yeah. a rhythm where... They almost wrote jingles. They almost yeah, wrote yeah. things that that stick with you. Like I was saying, listening back to the record, like I know what each one is, and it's not. I have other records that I've listened to front to back repeatedly, and you go, "Oh, what happens after this song?" But the the structure and the flow and the the kind of driving beat behind it, all of it is it it just coalesces into yeah something that was going to change. I mean, because. If you weren't into uh, rock music at the time, rock music at the time was just big hair and people, yeah, you for know, sure. sure, slinging, you know, talking about how many girls that they were going to go hang out with, and and I think that's probably why I didn't get into rock music earlier because I I bought my first album with my own money in nineteen eighty six, eighty seven, probably eighty seven. What was it? Run DMC, tougher than leather. But it was like everybody's first record of our yeah. age, you know? Because yeah. I was never super into rap, but that was one of the first records yeah. I ever bought. But I sure as shit wasn't gonna buy like like I Guns and Roses. I hated. Like, oh really? Yeah, I fell for I fell for Guns and Roses in like '89. I, yeah. I I went for it. I couldn't do it. But the first the first record after Run DMC that I bought was NXS's Kick. Nice. And like on on a on an LP. Like I went I rode my bike to Music Plus. <laughs> it's a great album, yeah. Though. And I bought it uh, cuz I was like, well, my parents have a record player. I guess I'll buy a record. And then I rode back on my bike with it blowing like a sail on the, off the handlebars. <laughs> but Nirvana's Nevermind was I think it was the first record I was excited about. Like the first yeah. I would buy like a lot of I would save up my lunch money and I would buy tapes every week for things that I was uh, right. into at the time. But Never mind. There was such a like. There was a buzz about it before there was it, before it even broke. Right. And I remember this guy Kevin that I knew was the first person I knew who had it. And I was like, "Is it like Soundgarden?" And he goes, "What Soundgarden?" Like? <laughs> and I was like, "It's these dudes who take acid and tune their guitars weird." And he goes, "Yeah, no, it's nothing like that. <laughs> <laughs> it is not." 
I mean, Bleach was kind of like that. Bleach, Bleach almost sounds like it was supposed to be a, like that. The engineer was trying to make a metal record. Like, right. It sounds like it wasn't quite mixed right, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I mean, they spent six hundred bucks on it. So well, you get what you pay for. Yeah. You know, get what you pay for. Which, yeah, that that'll be that that'll be an interesting story to cover. There's oh, that's a lot a, of yeah, yeah. Crazy there's, stuff. There's behind a lot of crazy Bleach. stuff behind that. Yeah. yeah. What's your favorite Nirvana memory in general? We'll we'll close out with that. It's Nirvana adjacent. It was when I first yeah. learned to play Penny Royal T on guitar. Oh, and nice. And I remember the lyric, I'm so tired I can't sleep. Really resonant. Oh, man, I almost got, like, I almost cried for a second yeah. there. That's weird. It's weird when that's, like, that was the, that's the thing about Nirvana. Whatever he, whatever Kurt was saying in the lyrics was meant something to him, but you could imprint your shit onto it. Right. And when I learned to play that song, and it wasn't that long after he'd passed away, I remember just playing, actually, I think it was the day, I think it was the day he passed away, I just sat in my room and played that on an acoustic, and I, I cried, and I yeah. was, like, sad about it. And I was, I was sad that this guy that I didn't know, but I felt like I knew, was gone, and that that song had touched me in a way that still, me- that still means something to me, and every now and then yeah. I still play it. So that... that and the the other Nirvana memory that uh, I I kicked myself that I could have seen him live and I never did. Oh really? That I I had I could have gone with some friends and I either I either I forget why I couldn't go, but I remember thinking, well I'll see them next tour. Yeah. And there was never a next tour that I could go to. So. Oh, that sucks. I I would say, but the the thing that I think of when I think of Nirvana is his performance of Penny Royalty, and then me being able to just kind of like. When I first learned that I could play and I can't, yeah. I'm not, not comparing myself to him, but right. that I could play and sing it at the same time like he did, yeah, it really kind of meant something to me. Yeah, it's song. kind of a hard song to play. You have to play with your fingers, right? Yeah, well, he, he kind of, yeah, he kind of skips yeah. around a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I knew how to play that song once upon a time. Right. I quit playing guitar after a while because who has the time? Well, you know. I'll get back into it someday. Yeah, you, I thought you still had a didn't you have a guitar one time when I was here? Or did I uh-uh. imagine that? No. We just talked about guitars yeah, a lot. We yeah. talked about it. What's your favorite Nirvana memory? Well, besides the MTV unplugged thing, which that was was like a life changing moment. Sure. I think my favorite purely Nirvana related memory, and we talked about it a little before the show, and I've I talked about it on another podcast a couple weeks ago, but their performance on top of the pops. <laughs> like <laughs> I show that yeah. to anyone who's like, oh, Nirvana was such a sad band. It's like, watch them on top of the pops and tell me how fucking sad they were. They were having the best time. It is one of the most genuinely funny things I think I've ever seen. And it, I think it really typifies what, what that band was. You know, they were, they were huge. They made really pretty pop songs at first. A lot of people tuned into it. And... I feel like that performance is a really good kind of snapshot of how Kurt Cobain reacted to that fame, which is, you know, it he kind of had to accept it. He couldn't just quit the band. Right. But also he, like you said earlier, had a lot of fun with it. Like when he went on Rolling Stone, I was on the cover of Rolling Stone and wore a shirt that said, corporate magazines still suck. <laughs> right. Like, I love yeah. all of that shit about him. Like, that is my favorite thing about Kurt Cobain was just that kind of like it was it was shitty to some extent like that he would do that to Rolling Stone but also it it's so playful coming from them like if I saw Axl Rose do that I'd be like fuck you you're a corporate piece of shit yourself right, right. 
And so was Nirvana, kind of, at that point. But it's just different coming from Kurt Cobain. I feel like Kurt had a bit of a wink and a smile to yeah, it. Whereas yeah. someone like Axel would just feel put upon in a victim, you know? Right, right. Whereas Kurt's idea was, I understand that this is part of the job, and I can think that it's dumb on the top of the pops that you want me to play to a tape when we're a live band. Right. But, okay, you want me to do it? We're going to do it this way. Then. And then he he actually talked them into letting him sing live because they normally don't. Oh, I, they I, do the whole thing? They normally do the whole thing. And he talked them into letting him That's sing great. live and then does that crazy, like, Morrissey-type performance. <laughs> yeah, it's like Sisters of Mercy doing, doing uh, what was what was the song? It was uh, Smells Like Teen so, Spirit. Right, yeah. Load up on drugs and kill your friends. <laughs> What's crazy about that, the first time I ever heard that, I had gotten a Nirvana bootleg that had all these unreleased songs in it. Completely out of context, just said, never, uh, smells like teen spirit goth version. And I remember hearing it, and I was like, what the fuck did they record this for? <laughs> yeah. This is the craziest thing what I've ever thinking? heard. Yeah. Yeah. And then I saw, there. I think there's a clip of it on the live tonight sold out DVD. Yeah. And I think that's probably where I saw it. I sure shit didn't see it on top of the pops. Right, because that's a British show, right? Yeah. 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 yeah he's, this, his guitar has no strings. And he's yeah. just, he's, I don't even think he's like, playing it like what he would with his fingers. I think he's just passing a a flat Yeah, hand he's just passing cross- a yeah. hand over it. Chris <laughs> Novoselic is just throwing his bass in the air. <laughs> At one point, Dave Grohl starts shooting his arm up in the air every time <laughs> he fucking hits the snare. It's so fucking amazing. And it's just like it never it never gets old to me. Like I could watch that clip every single day. And it's it's just that personality that I, I think I really liked the most. I mean, and the songs, obviously. Right. But I I like those kind of stunts. I liked when he he pulled shit like that. Also, there's also on the live tonight DVD performance of "Come as You Are," where he starts playing and is clearly way out of tune. So instead of tuning his guitar, he just starts singing out of tune with the guitar, <laughs> and it's like. It's such a funny and like natural thing. It was just like in the moment he was like, "Well, it would be funny if I just did it the other way and just sing out of tune with it." And I just, I don't know. I just love that. I liked his spirit. He just uh, struck me as a good dude. Yeah, I, I, I kind of wonder what it wasn't that long ago. It would have been his fiftieth birthday. Yeah, uh, I guess he it was, was last year. He was born in sixty-seven, so it would have been this year. Oh, this year. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was early. It was earlier this year. Yeah, it was earlier this year. It was it would have been his fiftieth birthday, and I was like, I wonder what what would, what would a fifty year. I don't know if he would have made it to fifty. Yeah, he might not have because he had. I mean, he had legitimate health problems. Yeah. at twenty seven. Forget all the other stuff. Forget all the conspiracy theories. I don't know if he would have made it to fifty. Yeah, and he, I mean, he had a heroin habit. A lot of people don't survive that. Right. I I feel like you know I feel like with any band. People are all when any band ends way earlier, a musician dies young. People are always like, "Oh, mu- just imagine what music would be now if they were alive." Music would be what it is right now, right. and and you'd have some stuff that you're, you'd be disappointed in. Yeah, yeah, he because would've... they're gonna in order to keep a career going, you have to go. All right, what should I do? Like, yeah, Jimi Hendrix would have done a song with Puff Daddy, and we would all been really sad about it. Exactly, you know, exactly. and, and so. I could have seen him putting out a lot of really good music, though. Yeah. I don't. I don't think he. I, I. I don't imagine he would have maintained that level 
of fame, but you know, neither did Eddie Vedder. And right. like I could have seen him mostly just being kind of like Eddie Vedder, you know, still working with bands occasionally, or in Eddie Vedder's case, Pearl Jam. Doing a ukulele album. Yeah, and then yeah, <laughs> occasionally just making a fucking movie score. We're like, all right, that's boring. Get back to rocking, please. But it still would have been better to have him around sure. than not. And, you know, it's always a tragedy when when a career ends that early. It, it, and look, I, I'm not taking away from the tragedy, but we get 27-year-old Kurt forever. We don't have yeah. to to imagine. We can imagine what would have happened. Yeah. We get to stop there. You know, we get to hit pause there, which I think is the only way to kind of really make peace with it. Yeah. You, oh, yeah, you, for you know, sure. As you go, but we got three and a half years. He was, you know, the biggest rock musician in the world. Yeah. And did some fun, interesting things with it. And you know, there's examples out there of what what would have happened if the band went on. I bring this up all the time on these podcasts, but Aerosmith almost bought the plane that Leonard Skinner died in. Whoa! They saw the crew passing around a bottle of Jack Daniels and decided that the airplane crew partied too hard for '70s Aerosmith, and they and, they're, they're, and we're out. bailed on buying the plane. So Leonard Skinner ends up buying it, and. I think this is the best example of, oh, what would have happened if they just kept on? If Aerosmith died at that point, best band in, at least best American rock band sure. in history. Because those first four albums, at least, are damn near flawless. And then the fifth album's fine, but that's when they started to wane. And then they broke up for a bit. And then they, and then yeah, and then things yeah. really went off the rails. But if they died in that plane crash after those first five albums people would have that same talk about Aerosmith. Mm. They'd be like, what would music be like if Aerosmith was still around? The Armageddon soundtrack. <laughs> I, I hate to break it to you, but that's where that train was headed. Right. And I don't, I don't know that Kurt Cobain would have been that much different. And, you know, it's hard to say it's better. Like, you know, obviously not. It would be better if he was alive. But you're right. It's, you know, at least the, the most perfect version of Kurt Cobain as a musician is the version we'll always have. And I also think, too, without getting into the, you know, how he died and all the conspiracies and all of that. Yeah. If you want to go with the what it is on paper and what the, the story is reported, there's something about becoming that big and that popular that fast at that young. Yeah. That probably is difficult to even comprehend, you know? Oh, for sure. And that if you're already kind of have a because I, I think we can agree that kurt certainly had an up and down that while he oh, was yeah. fun and funny he also kind of had a sad side. yeah yeah i don't think he was ruled only by the sad side but right i think it becomes a little little hard to figure out like how you can't sustain that you can't be the biggest thing in the world for three years from obscurity to now you can't go anywhere right and be okay with it i think yeah and i i it seemed like near the end there from what you know, if you if you read the official version, it seemed like he did kind of want to just sort of step back a little and was getting a lot of pressure from people right. telling he, him he couldn't. He wanted to retire. That's yeah. the, that's the conspiracy is that that's not a suicide note. Exactly. That's a yeah. retire. That's a I'm retiring from public life note. Right. And yeah, that's a that's a lot of pressure. Like that's and again, I can't, I at twenty seven. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I was such a piece of shit at twenty seven. Yeah. I would have had no fucking at clue. Thirty at thirty seven, I wasn't great. Yeah. At forty two, <laughs> debatably, still not awesome. You know. Exactly. I can't imagine. I can't even can't put my head around it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a crazy story. I'm looking forward to covering. Yeah. There's so many things to get in. More. I mean, yeah. This is just kind of a scratch the surface kind of 
Yeah. Like, you know, meet us. Yeah. Let us tell you why we should tell you about yeah. Nirvana. Come hang out in the pool with us. But this <laughs> pool gets really deep, you know. It gets yeah. really deep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, it's going to be like the Titanic of podcasts. It'll be a great story <laughs> leading up, but you know where this is going. It's going to be a guy with blue lips on let the door. <laughs> let there be no doubt where this story's headed. But we'll try to make it fun. In between, because there is a lot of fun stuff. There is a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah, too. yeah. There are a lot of really great Nirvana stories that we will cover. I'm excited about it. Plus, we could even talk about Sweet Seventy Five. When's the last time somebody did that? Exactly. You know, never. <laughs> I think this might be the. Fun. I bet this is probably the first time they've come up on a podcast ever. Yeah, yeah, ever. We can talk to Chad Channing. Oh think yeah, I think we could track that guy down. Well, he's a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame member now, right? Yeah, I mean. Other than, I, I mean, why not? Yeah, yeah why not? <laughs> He's still in public life, technically, yeah. right? We'll, we'll find him. Yeah. So yeah, we should uh, we should wrap this up. All and right, we'll be we'll be back next week with not sure what our first episode will be, but me and Travis will work it out between then. Yeah, we'll put a lot of uh, electro harmonics, uh, small clone <laughs> on it, and a little bit of uh, big muff, and it'll sound amazing. Exactly. Did you ever buy any of those? Pe- Absolutely, I, yeah, I, I bought, bought all of them. I bought all the pedals yeah. he fucking used. Yeah, yeah. it was great. So, yeah, we should get out of here. Do you have anything plug before we get out of here? Oh, I'll be in Las Vegas uh, June 19th through the 25th at the Laugh Factory. Go see Travis. June 19th through the 25th. 19th through the 25th. The Two Laugh shows Factory. a night. You have 14 opportunities to see me <laughs> <laughs> in, uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, and come see me at the Darkest Hour every second Friday of the month, Westside Comedy Theater in Santa Monica, 11.30 p.m. It's a fun show. And uh, check out the rest of our podcasts on Patreon.com. We do 10 episodes a week, $5 a month. It's cheap as shit. And also uh, give this podcast good ratings and reviews on iTunes or we'll fucking hurt you. Yeah. Come on, man. Yeah, we will kneecap you. What? It's not even that hard. Yeah. Yeah. Nirvana was great. You like Nirvana. You're listening to this podcast. And we're going to tell you more things about Nirvana. And then so you should just say, those guys seem cool. Yeah, those guys seem great. Yeah. Leave that leave that review. That's a perfect review. Yeah. Five stars. These guys seem great. Smells like a podcast. <laughs> oh. oh, I thought I had the fucking sound effects machine on and I did not. So I just hit a button. No, I heard it. Oh, did you? Yeah, I heard some. Oh. Yeah. I don't think we got it on here. Oh, bummer. <laughs> I know what it was. I'll That's just, all that matters. I'll just put it in in post. <laughs> just let off an air horn while I'm editing. That'll be fun. All right, let's get out of here. We'll be back next week. Travis, say goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. We love you.